Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. All right, well, good morning. Uh, If I've not met you, uh, my name is David Cumbie. I'm the lead pastor here at Apostles. And on behalf of the Apostles family, uh, if you are visiting, we're so glad that you are here. Uh, We have a really special treat this morning. Um, A brother in Christ uh, has come uh, all the way from England uh, just to be with us and worship with us and to bring God's word to us. So I want to introduce Pastor Vaughn Roberts. Uh, Vaughn is the lead pastor and rector at St. Ebb's Anglican in Oxford, England. Uh, and has been serving there faithfully for over 30 years. Can I say that? Okay, over 30 years. And, um, and so we are really grateful uh, and blessed just to have him come and bring God's word. So, Vaughn, would you come? Thank you, David. Thank you for your welcome. Great to be here. Um, as David said, uh, I work for a church right in the center of Oxford, and I've been saying to people recently, because I know you guys um, are committed to church plants, and we're a church plant. We were planted 1,300 years ago. So we've been around a little while, and um, I am, we've got a list of the rectors of St. Ebbs on the board, and uh, I'm the hundredth on the board, but that's as far back as we can kind of work out, back to 1216, but uh, that's after about 500 years of our existence. But all the way through, although there's been lots of change during those 1300 years, all the way through the same message, Jesus Christ has been proclaimed as Lord, and uh, I don't know if you've been to Oxford, some of you, anyone been to Oxford? Okay, a number of you. And uh, many of our visitors come and they say, could you show us the campus, please? And that's very hard to do because Oxford is not a campus university. So all around the town, there's a university building there and then a shop and then some offices and then another university building and then a church. And we are right in the heart of that. And so one of our ministries is very much to reach college students who come to Oxford from around the world. And that's a privilege and a challenge. So um, let me just tell you that uh, this is an exciting time of year. Schools start again, colleges start again. So the world's about to come to Oxford once more. And there are loads of things that they can do while they're studying. There's the academic studies and then lots of societies. So very early on, they have a fair. It's called Freshers' Fair. And all the different societies offer what they're doing. And the students go around to see. And one Freshers' Fair a few years ago, the Christian Union, we, we don't have all the uh, ministries that you guys have got, crew and um, InterVarsity and so on. It, it's just one group, the Christian Union, student-led, uh, and then churches that are trying to reach students. So the Christian Union was the one Christian group, and they were banned because it was felt that this could cause offense to those who weren't Christians, to have Christians on the store. Well, that got overturned. It was a bit of silliness. And most people, even non-Christians, thought, that's just silly. But it gives you a sense of the mood shift that's happened in England. I've noticed it in the over 30 years that I've been working at St. Ebbs. 30 years ago, when um, I arrived, there were quite a lot, with a Christian background, they were churched people. They might not have a real living faith, but they were used to church. And if they had to tick a box, religion, they'd put Christian even if it wasn't heart faith. 
Now that number in 30 years is hugely reduced. 30 years ago, there was still a kind of default Christian morality around in the culture. The only weird thing about committed Christians was that they actually tried to live like that. But most other people thought, well, that's a good way to live. We just don't want to live like that. 30 years on, Christian morality is no longer regarded a good thing. It's regarded as immorality, not least in the area of sexual ethics. And so we found the temperature rising, which makes it harder and harder for Christians to stand out and be different, to live our faith. And many people are saying, I just don't feel at home anymore. I used to feel like a Christian community and culture. I don't feel at home anymore. And it may just be that you're beginning to feel that here. Now, I know um, Texas, that's another country, by the way. Um, I've been to the U.S. many times. I've only been at uh, Texan airports before this week, and it's been a privilege to actually visit a little bit of Texas. And I know it's a different country, and um, the South is more Christian in its culture, and Texas has that Christianity deep in its roots. But some of you have been saying that, at least in the cities, you're beginning to feel that, that shift, and you're noticing it in the schools. And it just doesn't feel quite what it used to be like. And I really hope that doesn't continue in the direction that is happening in Oxford. But if it does, more and more committed believers will be feeling like we feel in England. We just don't really feel at home anymore. And as soon as we begin to feel like that, we're in good company. Because that is normal Christian living. And we're looking today at... Daniel chapter 1. And Daniel, you may know, was an exile. So he was born in Jerusalem, and then he was the one, one of the very first who the Babylonians took in exile. Just a small group at first. It wasn't long before the Babylonians took the whole people of Judah into exile. So here's Daniel, belonging to Jerusalem, but living away from home in Babylon. In Jerusalem, the temple dominated the skyline when he was a boy. There was one God that was worshipped, and everyone, at least officially, worshipped him. Go to Babylon, no one heard of the Lord. They worshipped other gods. And the big question was, how was Daniel going to live away from home? Where all the pressure was just to fit in. When in Rome, do what the Romans do. When in Babylon, surely, just do what the Babylonians do. That's the pressure we're feeling, and I'm sure many of you are beginning to feel it too. How should we live away from home? Interestingly, first Peter, the Apostle Peter, writes to Christians, and he describes them as aliens and strangers in the world. And he writes his letter from Babylon. Well, he, Babylon no longer really existed as a community then. He was speaking from Rome. And he was assuming that Christians lived away from home. Home was with Christ in the kingdom of God. But living as aliens and strangers. So how should we live away from home? We're going to learn some lessons from Daniel and his friends. And there are three of them. First, don't withdraw don't 
withdraw. That's a temptation, just to hide away and run away from the world. You'll know the story, I guess. You heard it read, uh, beautifully read. It came alive, didn't it, in the reading? We have these young men, verses 3 and 4, uh, handpicked. They were from uh, a noble lineage. They were very able, good-looking, able young men. And they were handpicked to be groomed to be ready to serve this foreign power. And so they were taken from Judah away to Babylon. How would they live? Now, if you've ever heard sermons on Daniel chapter 1, and I've heard a number in my time, they've probably focused on Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 in my version, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel said no. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. And we'll come to that. Daniel did say no. But what is very striking to me is before he said no, he said yes. He said yes, quite surprisingly, to a number of things. His stance towards the Babylonians was not one perpetual no. He wanted to get involved as much as he possibly could. He didn't withdraw. And so strikingly, he said yes to a pagan education. And of verse 4, the one put in charge of these young Judean men, was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Now, Babylon was a highly sophisticated culture. Um, in the world of that time, far ahead of any other culture in its literature, in its astronomy, in its mathematics, in its scientific endeavor, so these are impressive people. There was a, a highly sophisticated intellectual life that he would have been introduced into. But throughout, it was deeply infected by paganism, polytheism, and magic. And he accepted it. I can't believe he was happy with it, but he didn't decide that that was the moment to say no. And no doubt he engaged with it thoughtfully, carefully, not imbibing at all, but he didn't withdraw completely. He said yes to a pagan education. Even more strikingly, he said yes to a political career. Then the verse 5, we're told they were to be trained for three years. That's a typical time of a British university education. And after that, they would enter the king's service. And bear in mind who the king was. This is Nebuchadnezzar who in time, just a few years after this, is to crush the people of Judah and take all the people into exile. And yet Daniel enters the imperial service of a pagan king. And this, by the way, is a classic way of empires ensuring control. It's how the British ran India for many years. I mean, it was astonishing that um, Britain, the British Empire, when it still existed ran India with a tiny number of Brits there and this vast population. How did they do it? Well, they took maharajas and princes and the aristocracy and many of them and take them over to England, educate them at smart private schools and in military academies, send them back home and they'd effectively become British. And then they were very helpful agents of the British Empire. And this seems to be Nebuchadnezzar's 
plan to take some of the elite and bring them and train them for the imperial service. And again, very strikingly, Daniel doesn't say no at that point. He and his friends even say yes to a change of name. They recall Daniel. El is one of the names, ways of describing God, El. Hananiah, ear there, is an abbreviation of the word Yahweh, which is the name that the Lord gave for himself as he introduced himself to Moses. Mishael, Azariah, Yahweh. But those names, which all reflected the one true God, are replaced by Babylonian names, all of which would have been names with some kind of pagan associations. And even then, they didn't say no. And they weren't compromised. The reality is, if you're going to live in a world where most people don't love and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, there are challenges. It's not always straightforward. And we're not to be in perpetual opposition to everything, just saying, no, 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 no. And that's a temptation for some of us in Britain. The world that feels a bit scary. So why not spend all our time with other believers? We planted into another part of the city and we bought a building which had been a building owned by the exclusive brethren. The exclusive brethren cut themselves off from the world and indeed from any other Christian. And strikingly, the building that we bought had no windows except in the roof. They didn't want to be seen or to see the outside world. The local people around the building never met them. They'd drive in, go into the building, commune with one another, and with God, and then scatter away again. First thing we did, of course, was to put, building, uh, put windows in because we wanted to be open to the world and to engage with the world as much as we possibly can. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. No, no good being light if we're not in the world. Peter, writing, do you remember, to aliens and strangers, said, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Not just live good lives among one another, cut off from the world, but in the world, and yet not of the world. And we're praying that our college students and others who belong to St. Debs would come to us be discipled and trained and built up together in Christ that they might be sent back into the world to shine for Jesus. I heard of a Marxist in the east end of London, which is a, a tough part of town. And uh, he was very com committed politically, very engaged in the local community as uh, a local councillor. And he hated Christianity. But then he noticed in this particular part of the city that when there were immigrants arriving from other parts of the world, and we've got many Ukrainians at the moment, again and again it was Christians who welcomed them, Christians who gave them a home, Christians who volunteered and taught them English. When there were elderly people who were stuck at home, it was Christians who'd welcome them to lunch clubs, who'd drive them to hospitals. And so having began with a great hatred of Christianity, 
After two or three years of witnessing this, he said, I still don't like what they believe, but I'm really glad they're in this community. And as you read through the book of Daniel, you find again and again, that was true of Daniel. People felt, we're really glad he's here. And so he ended up being in significant positions serving this pagan king, but without compromise. We'll come on to that in a moment. But it begins by saying, yes, don't withdraw. But then here's the second point. Don't compromise. The things we've got to say yes to if we're going to be involved in a world, even a world that's increasingly unchristian as it is in England. But there are lines that must not be drawn. We're not going to be lights in the world if effectively we become darkness. If we say yes, 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 yes to everything and never say no, we're not going to shine as lights in the darkness. Don't withdraw, but don't compromise. So we come to that verse that I've often heard preached on, and rightly so. In my version, verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. One of my nephews is an Assyriologist, which means he has done a doctorate in the ancient Near East, and his expertise is on Babylon. That's his life. And I asked him, why did Daniel draw the line here? And it's quite hard to be sure. It, it's certainly not about the food laws, you know, the, the, the Israelite food laws, certain things you shouldn't eat, because um, there's nothing in the Israelite food laws that forbids wine, for instance. It's very likely something to do with the fact that this food would, would have been offered to idols, very likely, quite possibly also about the relationship implied by sitting at the king's table, because we know that was the real inner circle. In fact, later in the book of Daniel, there's a prophecy that says even those who sit at the king's table will be against him. And it might be that Daniel's saying, look, I'll, I'll serve you, but I won't be in your pocket. There's a line that's drawn, because ultimately I serve the one true God. It could be a mixture between that and the idolatry aspect. We can't be sure, but for whatever reason, he says, now this is the line in the sand. I'll say yes to as much as I can say yes to, but I'm not saying yes to everything. And here Daniel says no. And you remember, not long later, Daniel chapter 6, when the new king, Darius, says that no one in the kingdom should pray to any god or man except to the king, Daniel says no. Can't do that. Because he's a servant, yes, of his king, but above all, a servant of the living God. Striking that he's very polite about it. He asked the officials, verse 8, he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And we can be faithful and polite. Faithful and brave and polite. There's not a lot of politeness around these days, is there? And certainly, when points of principle at stake, what you've got in social media is angry people shouting at one another. And even those we think might well be right, don't you find sometimes you think, I agree with that person, but I just don't like the way they're saying it. 
And we Christians are called to say the right things in the right way. And we might profoundly disagree with the religious or political or ideological position of some other person, but they are a person made in the image of the living God. We dare not treat them like dirt. Jesus never taught, treated anyone like dirt. So here is Daniel asking for permission. It's a polite way of going about it, but also a brave way of going about it because it was very risky to ask, essentially, not to obey what the king wants him to do. And I don't know, are you more naturally a brave or a polite kind of person? If you're naturally polite, your temptation is not to be brave because you want to please people, you don't want to upset people. If you're naturally, instinctively brave, your temptation is not to be polite because you'll make a stand, but you won't necessarily make it in the right kind of way. And Daniel was brave and polite. It's a risky thing to do, but he drew a line. And I wonder, where's the line for us? Sometimes it should be straightforward. Think of a friend of mine who had recently come to faith in Christ, and in his workplace it became clear that he was expected to lie routinely. So if at work they were behind with the work they were meant to be doing, he was just told, just tell them that the order's in the mail as a way of keeping them quiet when he knew perfectly well the order was not in the mail. And he said, I can't do that. And the pressure mounted to such an extent that he ended up having to leave his job. Well, that's clear. We're not to lie. And if a boss at work commands us to lie, we have to say, I can't do that. I've got to serve Jesus above my boss. At times, it's, it's clear. That's just a line. We mustn't disobey the living God. At other times, it's not so clear. It seems that it's something about the idolatry behind this food. But Daniel says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. But interestingly, there was idolatry, paganism, behind the education. But for some reason, he, he was prepared to take the education, but he wasn't prepared to take the food. And I suspect sometimes it's not always straightforward where the line is. Think of the idols of our age. Careerism is an idol. I live for my career, even above my God. Okay, what's the line? And how hard is it okay to work? You can't answer that question. And yet there must be lines drawn because there are many people who sacrifice not only their health, sadly their family and even their faith at the altar of career. So it's very hard. I can't tell you you can only work so many hours a week. There's, there's no rule about it in the, in, in the Bible, but if I'm not drawing lines, then I'm probably going to end up worshipping career. Well, what about materialism? So um, what's a godly car to drive? What's a godly size of house to live in? I mean, you, you can't answer these kind of questions. And of course, the New Testament has wealthy people who are very, very generous. 
They're not materialists. They're living for the Lord God and they're using their resources for the glory of God and the good of others. There are others who have much less, but they're absolutely driven by materialism and everything they get, they're thinking about themselves. It's mine to do with what I want. But you can't draw lines and and judge just because you might decide, I'm I'm not going to spend more than X on this amount, on on this area of um, life. How dare they spend all that money when there's so many needy people in the world? You can't do it like that. When I spend, I can tell you, absolutely no money on ballet. But I don't like it very much. That's not godliness. So where is the line to be drawn? I can't tell you, but a line does need to be drawn. Because there are many people in this country and in mine who worship mammon more than they worship God. Where's the line for you? Don't withdraw. Don't compromise. And then finally, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This is a book of wisdom, really. And the big question is, what is the wise way to live away from home where most people don't worship the living God? And humanly speaking, as you look at Daniel, most people would say, Daniel, don't be a fool. It's only a bit of food. Just for goodness sake, eat it. You can lose your life. Just some small little principle. Just fit in. Recognize the powers that be. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful person in the world. Fit in. Keep your head down. That's the wise way to live. But things aren't always what they seem to be. One writer suggested if you want to summarize the message of the whole book of Daniel in one phrase, it is this. Despite appearances, the living God is in control. So it makes sense to serve him whatever the cost. Despite appearances, the living God is in control. And the writer of Daniel makes that point very subtly. Narrative in in scripture is subtle. So if you want to spot the message, you've just got to spot the clues. As Ralph Davis, who writes about Old Testament narrative brilliantly, says you've got to spot the narrator's waving hand. And whenever the writer steps into the story and makes a comment, don't miss that moment. And you get such a comment right at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1. We're told it's the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And then verse 2 in my version, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord delivered him into his hand. If you didn't have that comment and you saw what's going on, you would think that this God that the people of Judah worship is not a very powerful God. And certainly the Babylonians are saying, our God is more powerful than your God. That's why we've been able to capture you. And to make the point, they took, verse 2, objects from the temple in Jerusalem to the living God and lodged them in their own temples in Babylon. And it's a very clear way of saying... Our God, or our gods, are bigger than your God. So it looks disastrous, and if you just look with the naked eye, you might think, 
Not only have we been defeated, but our God has been defeated, so we might as well fit in with this king and these gods. But the writer's saying, the Lord delivered. The Lord. This is not a disaster. This is the Lord's judgment on his people. He's still in control. You get another clue in verse 9. As Daniel asked for permission, God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. And God looked after Daniel. And so he allowed the trial to go through, and he eats only vegetables, but it ends up just as fit and healthy, if in fact more so than the others. And God is looking after him. And then later there's a significant moment when Daniel and his friends are brought before the king. And the king is amazed. They know more than anyone else. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding. And so he, he blessed them, he prospered them. And then comes the comment at the end of the verse, at the end of the chapter, verse 21, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And that's significant because King Cyrus was not a Babylonian. And what he's saying is throughout the 70 years of exile, Daniel was protected and preserved. Kings came and went. Nebuchadnezzar died. And then Belshazzar came, and he died. And then the Babylonians were defeated and were replaced by the Persians, King Cyrus. And so human kings come and go and come and go. But the living God remains in control. And throughout it all, he's looking after Daniel. Daniel represents the people of God in exile. Throughout all the ups and downs of global politics, the living God reigns, and he's watching after his man who represents his people. So how do we respond as we close? You might think, um, is there any encouragement here? There's a challenge, certainly. But if you're like me, you could feel pretty low. Because although I shouldn't be afraid, and therefore get involved and say yes and not withdraw, although I shouldn't be afraid and recognize that the living God is in control and therefore should not compromise and be prepared to say no, very often I have withdrawn and been cowardly and not engaged when I should have done. And I have just gone along with the crowd and compromised and not said no when I should have done. Yet just as I begin to feel low, the Bible, and of course every part of the Bible is in the context of a whole story. The Bible points me to the one who perfectly fulfilled what Daniel modeled. The Lord Jesus Christ was an exile. He belonged in his heavenly home, but came to earth, a fallen world, a world in hostility to him and his father. He didn't withdraw. And when he engaged in the world, he didn't surround himself with protective spiritual armor. But he entered the world with tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees who hated him. He didn't withdraw. But he didn't compromise. Not once did he sin. He said no and no and no to what was wrong. And he wasn't afraid. 
when we find him on trial before Pilate. Pilate says, I've got the power of life or death over you. And Jesus replied very calmly, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. As Peter in his letter writes, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And if we do that, we're not promised protection from all harm. Jesus was arrested. He was beaten up. He was crucified. But we are promised that even if we suffer for standing out and being firm, that is not the end of the story. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was vindicated. He was raised. And all who trust in him will be vindicated too. Have we failed? Of course we've failed. Jesus died for us as we're remembering as we take bread and wine. He's given to us his perfection in Christ's sight. His spirit to strengthen us to be faithful aliens and strangers in the world while we wait for him to return to take us to our heavenly home. Let me pray. Loving Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness in him. We acknowledge and confess that we've not been faithful as we should have been as strangers in this world. Help us to delight in the forgiveness we have in him. And then by your spirit, inspire us to follow his example. For your glory. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.